Hey. There's this, these two verses in that passage from Isaiah, which is written five to seven hundred years before Jesus was born. One says, And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the earth. And then, do you know what it says right after that? That he will see his offspring and prolong their days. It's kind of an interesting prophecy, isn't it? That whoever this person is, this servant of the Lord, will will be cut off before he has any children, and yet will have plural offspring whose days will be prolonged. Um, Which kind of gets at something that comes up in John chapter 1. We've been doing this series called um, Giving Jesus about the generosity of Jesus, what, what, he's, what God is really like as revealed through the person of Christ. And the verses that we come to today focus on um, that those who receive him can become children of God. That there's something about being a child in the way God does things that doesn't necessarily mean physical offspring. Um, A couple, I think it was like two years ago now, I came home from being out of town at something, and there was a message on the answering machine. I never listen to messages on the answering machine because I assume someone will do that for me. But I I listened to this one, and it was said something like this. Hi, this is Sarah Anderson from Sunlight Adoption Agency, and we got your application, and everything's filled out fine. I just wanted you to know, I don't know if you have any questions or if you're ready to take the next step in the process. Here's my number, which I wrote down, because I did not know I was in an adoption process with anyone. (laughs) And so I called the number, and I was like, hey, Sarah, um, just wondering— So you have my application? Yep, I have it right here. It's all filled out. Great. Um, How far along in the process am I? And she's like, oh, it's just the initial application, but, um, you know, we're ready for the next step. And I was like, awesome. And do you have my signature on that? I mean, who's— She's like, oh, yeah, it says Alexi Gibson right here. I was like, great. All right, well, I'll get together with her, and and, uh, we'll uh, we'll get back to you. All right. And so— my wife came home soon after that, and I, I was like, Lexi, are, are we adopting a child? <laughs> and she, she, started, she, she just smiled. She was like, um, I, well, I just filled out the paper. That's all I did. I just, right? And I was like, okay. Because, like, all these other families, like, our age in the church, I don't know if you've noticed, have been adopting children. I mean, internationally— nationally, and it's the cool thing to do, apparently, Um, but it's also really awesome, and my wife was seeing that, and she knew that we could, and why not, and 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 so I, she and I went through that bit, and um, you know, we spent a lot of time with other families in the churches that have, the church has adopted kids, and that, and for other experiences earlier in my life, I've, I've thought a bit about adoption, and what it means and what it is and how it functions and um, the struggles that adoptive kids often have. And oftentimes we hear like the adoptive kids have these like very deep struggles um, because they're adopted. And a lot of times I think people think it's because of their genetics or something that like there's something wrong with them. That's why they were up for adoption in the first place. And that's, that's not really it. I mean, part of it is every child deals with, I have a biological mother. Why didn't she keep me? Which is not genetic. It's existential. 
right? But there's also this other issue. There are things in genetics that tend to make you like your parents. Temperaments, things like that. And one of the things that adoptive kids often struggle with is they just aren't like their parents in their adoptive family. Their temperaments are different. Their interests are different. There's something that just doesn't line up, and they feel it, and they know it. In fact, you see this, like, in other families, too. Like, I don't know if you know this, but in families that don't have adopted kids, usually at some point, every, every kid gets the practical joke done to them where they get told that they're adopted. So like the, like the other day, I was, I was telling my son at breakfast that we had just found him. And he was like, no, right? And then my other two older girls were like, yeah, we totally just found you. It was in, we were in Florida, we were on this hike. And there you were. He's like, what? And then, you know, he's like, no, no, no. And then there's always that moment where for a second they wonder, right? And then and all of a sudden you can like see their face and they, they're like, right? And at that moment, my wife turns to Jude and she goes, Jude, you are exactly like your father. He goes, that's right, that's okay. <laughs> Got it. I remember, I remember my brother and some of his friends pulling that on me. I was like, am I really adopted? I mean, I'm kind of weird. <coughs> and it matters because there is, the reason why that matters is because people say that legitimacy and being a son or a daughter has to do with genetics. And that does legitimate who you're in charge of (laughs) in families, generally speaking, but it does not actually dictate your sense of legitimacy as a son or a daughter. Your actual felt sense of legitimacy as a son or a daughter is whether or not you believe you are like your father and mother. That's why the destabilization of interesting parenting happens to everybody. What kids who are adopted feel, often um, people feel when they are just not like their parents. They're the biological child of their parents, but they're just really not like their parents. Or they had parents that were terrible, and they realized it, and they wanted to be as different from them as possible. And on one level, they understand a legitimacy to that in, in being different from them. But on another level, they're not just like anyone, and usually people will look for another figure that they can be like. Especially in adolescents. And part of the reason for that is, is that it is who we are like in function, character, and belonging that gives us a sense of legitimacy as children. And that is exactly what this passage is about. How you and I are or aren't sons or daughters. And this is important because— um, We don't feel this so much in our present culture. Um, You see this more in Eastern cultures, but family is a kind of metaphor for salvation. We don't think of that in our terms because we're we're busy dividing up our families. Not just through divorce, but like just living in different parts of the country and all that kind of stuff. We generally don't have lots of generations together. Sometimes the only time we experience that is like Christmas time, right? But in other places, belonging to the family is everything. You're legitimated by your belonging to your family. You know that you belong because your family accepts you and holds you. Your sense of safety, if something goes wrong, who's going to catch you, right? Like, never in my life have I ever wondered what was going to happen to me if I failed. Ever. As long as I was like my father, that is, I didn't dishonor him by my behavior and reject him through my choices, I knew that if I failed, my family would be there for me. 
I knew it. There was a sense of safety with my family, so long as I was legitimately part of it. Even like, even kids, um, if, if I, for example, most people have an answer immediately to this question. If I say, which of your parents are you more like? Almost everybody that lived with their biological parents will know immediately they're more like one than the other. And to a certain extent, you actually take some comfort in it. So, for example, my oldest daughter, Abigail, she's 12, and she sent me this text because she's been out of town with the rest of my family for like 12 days now. And she's like, I miss you so much, right? And it's not because of a lot of other reasons it could be, but it's just because at this point in her life, she realizes how different she is from her mother, and it's creating problems. And she just understands me, and I understand her because she's just like me. Um, she, I, I'm not motivated to finish things if I don't see a reason for it. You know, I'm a little bit—I'm cool with people doing things for me. I don't take responsibility for things that are other people's responsibility. Um, I'm more empathic towards other people's—you wouldn't believe this about me, but I'm actually more empathic. To, I know how other people are feeling. And my daughter's like this. Like, she will not finish her schoolwork, but she took money that she earned mowing lawns to buy a blanket with a particular animal that a woman that almost no one talks to in this church was obsessed with, so she could give her that blanket for Christmas, right? This lady that she hardly knows. She just wanted her to feel good because she knows how this woman feels, right? And so she searched multiple stores to find this blanket, and she was so happy when she found it, and she bought it with her own money, not my money, just so she could give it to this woman, right? She's just like that, and she just—and she feels legitimated by knowing she's like me. Because she goes, well, dad apparently survived. <laughs> right? And dad can tell me, help me see what I'm good at. And he can also tell me what I'm going to have to be vigilant about because it's a failing and all that. And my, well, my daughter Rachel is not like that. I can't be that person for her. She's just like her mom. And so the only way I can, le I can legitimate Rachel's belonging in our family is by glorifying her mother. By showing how great I think her mom is and how—, how how full of honor and strength and capacity and ability and all that. And by glorifying Alexi, I can show Rachel that she's legitimate. Right? Because she, she belongs with Alexi in that way in terms of being like her. And as we go through this text, one of the things that we have to recognize is that when the Bible talks about sonship or being a child of God, it talks about it that way. It talks about being the child of God, being that we are like the Father. In being like the Father, we belong to the Father. And in being like the Father and belonging to the Father, we do the kinds of things that the Father does. And that is what legitimates and substantiates our being God's children. And so if you want to put the message of this passage in kind of like a pithy— are we going to be able to bring that up? And kind of like a pithy thing. It would be something like—oh, it's up there. It's just not up there. Does it work? Okay, great. That's fine. Um, it would be something like this, that the Word became a child so that you could become a child of God. If you read through John 1, you have the Word who was with God and is God, and that He has come into the world as the man Jesus Christ, as a child— and the purpose of that is so that you and I can actually become children of God. 
And yet in order for us to become the children of God and to have all the legitimacy and salvation that comes from belonging to God's family, we have to recognize, receive, and believe in the Son of God, Jesus, for who he is. We have to do that. We have to believe. We have to become the children of God. Now, all I want to do this morning is go over three questions that that brings up that the text answers. And one is the, a pretty basic question that's assumed by almost everybody in our culture, and that is, wait a second, Nick, um, aren't we already God's children? <laughs> I mean, you're kind of saying we have to become God's children, but we're already God's children. I mean, God created everything. He's the father of everyone. Isn't everyone a child of God already? I mean, everybody's read Adolf von Harnack's Dostas Christustum, so we all know that Christianity is about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, right? And so— how, I mean, isn't it kind of even offensive and even possibly oppressive for you to say you have to become a child of God, assuming that some are and some aren't, and then can't we just treat people who aren't God's children in some terrible way? And the first question is not, what is the result of unstable people's bad thinking about a fact? The question is, what is the truth first? And that is, is that the way the Bible portrays this, it is that you are not— you are not a child of God automatically. Not in the meaningful sense of the word. Not such that you can backload all of the benefits of the category into your life. And, and believing that we are God's children because God is the creator is a huge reason why people assume that they are saved or redeemed or are going to be okay cosmically without having to worry about God or anything like that. Because if God is our Father, then all of the responsibility is on Him. Right? If we're—if something happens to us, if we're a failure, if we're bad, if we're—whatever whatever it is, He's the Father, right? He's the bigger man in the relationship. He's supposed to take care of things. And the problem is, is that the, the Bible does not use the category of father that way. When you look, for example, at the context in this passage, John says, the word, he, came to that which was his own. Right? So as the creator, the metaphor that's used is the creator has ownership of all of creation. He doesn't use the metaphor of fatherhood. He says, Jesus came to that which was his own. It does belong to him, and it should recognize him, but it doesn't. And among those, he gave the right to those who would believe to become children of God. The word become in that context assumes something that happens, a transition from one category into another category. And if you become Become a child of God, it is deductive that before that you were not one. Okay? And this isn't just true of John. In fact, all the way through John's, in his writing, he's very consistent on this. But you can also see this in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uses a lot of language of us being the children of God. But in every case, he interjects the reality that we become children of God through adoption. Through adoption. The only one who is God's son— in himself is Jesus. And through the work of Christ, if we believe and receive the right to become children of God, and in doing so, we become children of God, we become adopted children into that family with all the rights and responsibilities thereof, and we're heirs with Christ, our first brother. 
So both of the major biblical authors that talk about being God's children and having sonship or daughtership in God, none of them talk about it as something that ipso facto exists because we're humans. It is something that must begin to exist because of something that happens. You and I must become God's children. <clears throat> now, it's, it's really easy to get confused about that because it's just not how we use the language. But in the ancient Near East, that is how they use the language. For example, there's a person in the Bible called the son of Belial. The son of Belial, right? Belial is kind of a weird name. It's like my middle name, Gilbert. That didn't go well in high school, okay? <clears throat> but Belial is the Hebrew word for foolishness. So there's a person in the Old Testament called the son of Belial, which means he was so foolish, his character was so foolish, he so belonged to foolishness, and he still did the actions of foolishness, that it could be said that his father was foolishness itself. He is the son of foolishness because it is his identity, it is his belonging, and it is his action. His identity is foolishness, so he is foolishness's son. Similarly, if you look in— um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 6. <clears throat> Paul says this to the Thessalonian church. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day, that is the day of Christ's return, should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong, hear that language? We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying your identity, that is your character, is you are a son of the light or of the day, of goodness, of God, of his truth and his revelation. You've become his child. Therefore, you don't belong to wickedness. You belong to goodness, and therefore you must do the actions not of being asleep spiritually, but being awake and being powerful and being self-controlled. You see how that flows? Why? Because you are the son or daughter of light and of day in Christ. There's a place in John's gospel where Jesus makes this argument most offensively, and you know I'm just drawn to these passages. Um, there's, he's having this discussion with some Jewish people and Jewish leaders about the, our identity as children. And this is what he says. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin as opposed to a son in the context. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the, the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you, are, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do, and you do what you have heard from your father. So he's, he's saying, he's saying, you say that you are the descendants of Abraham, that you're Abraham's sons. But he says, I've come from the Father, that is God, and I am offering what I have seen in his presence, meaning that Jesus' actions are consistent with what? God's character, right? Right? Related to sonship. And then he says this. Abraham is our father, they answered. And then Jesus says back, If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the things Abraham did. 
As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth of what I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. See what he's saying? He's saying, it's true genetically in terms of descendants. You are the descendants of Abraham, but you're not his sons. You're not his sons. Because what Abraham did was, when God spoke the truth to him and made him a promise, Abraham believed it. Right? Twice in Genesis it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The sons of Abraham are the ones who are like Abraham, who do what Abraham did, that is, believe the truth from the Father when it comes to them. And what Jesus is saying is, you say that you're the descendants of Abraham, but you're not, because what Abraham did was he believed the gospel when it was spoken to him. And that's what I'm speaking to you, and you want to kill me. So you're not fathering your father Abraham. Your father, you're following another father, right? So their response is this. We are not illegitimate children. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come from God and am now here. And I have not come on my own, but he sent me. This, oh, I'm sorry, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Now, do you see that language there? You, what was the next word? You belong. You belong. You have belonging. You belong to your father, the devil, right? And you, what? Want to carry out your father's desires. So you see the argument he's making about the legitimacy of being a son or a daughter? He's saying, it starts with the character. You can't believe me. I'm, he's saying, I'm telling you the truth. You can't believe me. Why? Because you believe lies. That is, you respect and are bound to, by your choice, the character of your father. The father of lies. That is, the devil. And what that means is, is that you seek your belonging in him, and how that comes forward is you want to do his deeds. And so when I tell you the truth, your response is, I want to kill you. His argument is, if you were God's children or Abraham's children, you would believe the truth. And Jesus is saying, and that would be signified by you accepting me. And instead you want to kill me, and that shows who your father is. And it's not God, and it's not Abraham. It's the devil. Now, that's a little offensive, but it also should make really, really clear for us what sonship actually means, what it means to be a child of something in the Bible. You can be the son of foolishness. You can be the son of day and light. You can be the son of the devil. You can be the son of Abraham. You can be the son or daughter of God. You can be and it has nothing to do with your genetics or your line or your family or your culture or your race or any of those things. It has only to do with whether or not you respect and belong to the character of God. You find your belonging in belonging to him as he is in his character. And that causes you to want to do the kinds of deeds that he does. 
And that is why Jesus has to come into the world, because when you look at the human race, that is not the sense you would get from us. You would not find a race of beings that found their identity in the one who created all things and was good in all ways and truthful in everything, and that we found our belonging in him and we were constantly doing his deeds. Instead, the very first step of belonging, it says, wasn't true of us. That is, when he came, we didn't recognize him. We don't even know who he is. And you can't believe in and be bound to the character of someone and find your belonging in them and do their deeds and if you don't even know who they are. And because they didn't recognize him, because they were recognizing something else, because they were under the influence of a different father, they responded really differently. Now, if it's true that we're not automatically God's children already, and we have to become God's children, then the next question that's pretty obvious is, how do we then become God's children? And the answer in this text is, is that you don't. You don't. Um, it says that if we recognize, that is, we receive and we believe in the one who is the Son, Jesus, it doesn't say we become children of God. It says that he gives us the right to become children of God. That's what it says. And then it says, children who, when they are that child, are not born of um, background, genetics, the will of man or the will of— or the literal words are blood, flesh, or man. Nothing related to humans. Blood, flesh, or man. But born of God. That is, God does the birthing is what that means. And John uses this idea of being born or reborn or born into being— and that not being your physical birth— a number of times in his gospel, especially in chapter 3, where he says, you must be born again to Nicodemus. And then he says, you actually shouldn't be surprised that I say this. He says this, verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You actually shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So, I don't have time to talk about all of what that means, but what he's saying is, is he's saying gen background, genetics, history, ancestry, that is blood, flesh, anything that you can do in your power, or man, anything we do as a human race together, none of that produces a son of God or a daughter of God. Only the supernatural spiritual action of God himself rebearing someone in a spiritual way, produces real sonship or daughtership so that God is legitimately your father and you are legitimately his child. Does that make sense? In, in Peter's, in, um, Peter is the other New Testament author that uses the sort of born-again thing. In 1 Peter 1, 3, it says this, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through—so how has he accomplished this new birth? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So by raising Jesus from the dead, he legitimized our new birth, and then with that same power he raised Jesus from the dead, he then goes into our spiritual deadness and raises us up from the dead. 
and makes us like a newly born creature, spiritually speaking. And he has done that through the power of the resurrection, not because of our genetics, blood, will, flesh, or man. But he does the bearing. 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So how did you become born into this imperishable seed of the new birth? It's through the living and enduring word of God. Right? Now, some of you may have experiences of being wildly annoyed or angered or treated poorly by people who labeled themselves born-again Christians. And you might be like, I'm not going to be born-again, born-again. Okay, listen. When something happens after something else, if you read the thing that happens later into the thing that happened before it, that's called anachronism. It's a philosophical fallacy. Jesus isn't wrong 2,000 years before the idiot you didn't like because you met someone who 2,000 years later embodied it in a way you found annoying. Okay? The point of him using the metaphor of being born again is to say this. Who here feels like you could take significant credit for your birth? Just raise your hand. I I really pushed. (laughs) Right? No. You were the problem, okay? You You were the problem in that whole scenario, right? And your mom was the solution, okay? And she pushed you out. You didn't—your dad was even just like, come on, baby, you can—I mean, like, like you—it was a passive—not that you were necessarily passive, because you probably even fought it. You're, like, tensing up and stuff. But, like, you're like, I don't want to go out in the cold, you know? And—but you had to come out. It had to be done. And you didn't do it. And that is why the metaphor of the new birth is a perfect metaphor for what happens to us spiritually. It has to be done. It has to be done. You must become a child of God. There is so much waiting for you. You have found false sonship and false daughtership very ineffectual and unfulfilling. That sonship that you presumed because you believe God just must be your father because he's the creator. There is a much greater, because it is much truer, fatherhood of God over the life of the one who becomes a child of God because he births them. So what—so then what part do you have to play? And it's very clear in this text what part you have to play, and that is this. It says that for anybody who receives him or believes in his name, he gives them the right or makes legitimate in the auspices of grace and truth for God to make you through the new birth into his child. That is, because of the the righteousness and truthfulness of God, he, he cannot make you his child without you recognizing that sonship or daughtership requires you accepting that he is the one you are meant to imitate, belong to, and live in accordance with. Faith, believing and receiving the one who is Jesus, so as you can receive the right to be made in the image of God as his son, is to recognize it is his character that you are meant to belong to and imitate. It is only in that character and with God as he is that you can belong to him. He's not going to change who he is so you can have a belonging relationship. Belonging comes within the legitimacy of the truthfulness of who God is. You don't get to change him. You have to be changed to be like him. And so you have to affirm that's true. 
that he is who he is and you're meant to be like him in character, from that flows the possibility of belonging and out of it flows the imitation as a child who reflects the one that you imitate. And faith is simply saying, that's right. Yes. Yes. I've been resisting that. I've been against that. I've been trying to have God as my father and me as my savior. I've been doing all that, and I realize that doesn't work. And when I believe it and receive Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, I am accepting not only Jesus to sort of save me, I am accepting that Jesus is the glory of God embodied and the true revelation of the character of the one I am to become like. It doesn't mean you have to be good. You're still going to pretty much stink, just like me. You you are. I mean, nothing's going to change, and you're not going to be different right then. Faith is saying, that's right, God. I was wrong. Repentance and faith, right? I was wrong. You were right. And it is in recognizing that and believing it that you are given by God what we call justification or the right, the fundamental truthful legitimacy of being the object of his generosity. There are some mechanisms of generosity that are not legitimate because they're lies. There are some ways of acting like you're giving towards other people that are built fundamentally on a falsehood, and that's not generosity. It's not truthful. And that's why twice in this passage it says Jesus has come to demonstrate grace and truth. And so in in order for us to experience the fullness of his graciousness, the fullness of his generosity, the only thing he insists on is that we come truthfully. That's it. That's all. That's all he wants from us. He will give his grace, but he will only give his grace in the legitimacy of truthfulness. And so all he wants from you and from me is to be like, you're right. You're totally right. I was totally wrong. And in that moment, it becomes legitimate, and therefore God gives us the right to become the Son of God, what we call justification. We're made just in his eyes. The death of Christ is applied to us, and we can become regenerate. We can become born again. We can become born of the Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Preferably one of the ways that the Bible calls it. Remade, new, truly, in the fullest sense, the son or daughter of God. Now, I've talked about this last question basically the last three weeks, but I, I, I really believe people really struggle with this in um, modern, very secular, very educated cultures. And that is, if faith is the only way, like, that just doesn't seem right. How can faith be the only way to become a child of God? And in one sense, I've already answered that question in this sermon in a third way in the last three weeks, and that is this. If If salvation is recognizing and receiving the ability to become like the Father in character, belonging, and action, then by definition, you would have to accept that that's good, which is a statement of wrong and right, and therefore repentance and faith is the only possible means of the first step of that happening. You could imagine a salvation that was other things in addition to that. You have to acknowledge this first, and you have to remake yourself. (coughs) The problem with that is that it wouldn't work. God is much more pragmatic than that in his graciousness. But it must include a recognition of what's wrong and what's right. But there's a—I think there's another reason that is worth spending just a couple minutes on, and that is this. 
One of the reasons we believe that faith rather than the, the other two ways, the other two ways of salvation people generally believe in is um, by being a good person or by approving of the right things, right? Histor you, you conservative people tend to believe that you're, you know, you're legitimate as a person if you're a good person, like you do the right stuff. And um, more communitarian people believe that you're, um, you're a good person if you affirm the right things and the community's affirmation of things and it's affirming and shaming of people within that community. So then you can force people to be good as long as you approve of the right things, right? The reason why neither of those work and why faith is the only option and, why, and here's why we have a problem with that is that we go through the world thinking that we are experiential beings trying to make sense of the world in our lives. And so we fundamentally think of ourselves as scientists, right? I have these senses and I'm feeling and seeing and hearing and smelling the world around me. I'm bringing in all these sensory experiences. And then I'm rationally putting together what they must mean. And one of the questions, uh, among many questions I'm trying to figure out is, is there a God? What's that God like? And does it matter? Right? And when we come to the world as sensory beings, and we do that work, and we come up with an answer as to does God exist, the answer is agnosticism. Every time. Every time. Every time we come to the sense that, like, it's kind of inconclusive. Every human being comes to the same answer. And so, because we're thinking of ourselves as scientists, we believe that the virtues of understanding the world in that context would be honesty with the data, being reserved, not jumping to conclusions, being clear-minded, not affirming things we can't prove, right? And so we assume salvation in an ambiguous context because we're fundamentally agnostic must be something you can do in that realm of knowing. And if you can't know anything clearly about God, then it would be something you could know and do in that context, which would be something like being a good person. Right? And so when, a, when somebody like me comes along and says, no, you have to believe in Jesus— that sounds like manipulation because you're like, no, the number one ethical requirement of being honest as a scientist is to believe the data. And the data is inconclusive. So I can't do that. You're manipulating me. You want me to leap forward in an unscientific way and you want me to believe something <coughs> and I can't do that and be honest and be real and be authentic. Okay, okay. I totally agree with that. I just think that it is the wrong metaphor. And it's not the metaphor John is using. If you listen to John, John actually isn't using the metaphor of experiment. He's using the metaphor of, of intervention. Right? Listen to the language that he uses. He says, they didn't recognize. They couldn't understand. They wouldn't receive him. That very few would listen. You see, that's not, that's not scientific language. That's not the metaphor John is using. John is using the metaphor of intervention. And intervention presumes you can't believe the data. You can't believe the instruments. They're fundamentally opposite metaphors. They cannot coexist at the same time. The scientific metaphor assumes I have to believe the data. I need to believe my instruments. I'm reading the gauges. The, the 
Intervention metaphor says, you can't believe the data, you're looking at it wrong, your gauges are broken. There's, there's two kinds of people I meet with as a pastor in terms of giving advice. Usually the people, all of them, if they get so far as to come and meet with me, um, they have some kind of issue, they don't, they don't know how to solve their problem. And one group of people, it is because they just don't see it. And it's really because it's just kind of a kind of ignorance. And so I'll say, <clears throat> okay, so for, for example, there's a couple not too long ago that came to me, and they were, they thought they were kind of from similar cultural backgrounds, and they weren't, and they didn't realize it. And so they were responding to something in their family very differently, and they thought they weren't supporting each other, and it was kind of turning into this big fight. I'm like, ooh, this person's from this culture, which means they value this, 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 ahead of this, this, and this. You're from this culture, which means your value—you believe in all the same six things, but your, where you place them is totally inverted. So she's going to respond this way, you're going to respond this way. So you've probably had a conversation just like this, laid out the conversation. They're like, we said exactly those things. I was like, yep, right. It's because your backgrounds, okay, learn each other, right? And they were like, oh, and that was it. That's all it took. They figured it out from there, right? There's other people, I can have that meeting nine times. It goes the exact same way every time. Exact same way. And I'm like, don't you see when you say this, and they're hearing this, and like, you, you can't, when you're kind of being a jerk, and there's other, and then I'm turning the other, I'm like, when you act like this, then this is, person is going to respond like that, because what you're also communicating is this. You think you're communicating that, but you're communicating these four other things, right? And don't you see, right? And they're like, oh yeah. And then we have that, it's exactly the same conversation again. They're still doing, they're still doing, you're like, oh my gosh, right? And it's, be, it's because the perception issues that they're having aren't fixable with illumination with, like, just more information. Oh, let me give you this piece of information you're lacking. Once I give you the piece of information you're lacking, you'll get this, right? That's not the problem. There's a problem here. There's a perception issue that isn't—that's broken. Okay, let me, let me give you an example. Is it okay if I get really real with you for a couple minutes? Okay. I have a couple of these, like, really major perception issues that, like, I have needed intervention for, okay? And I'm going to tell you what it is. The main one is so you don't think it's, like, some kind of weird, dark addiction or something, okay? So <clears throat> there are some people that you may have heard them say this, and it's only partly true. They're like, I don't know if you've heard Nick talk, but, like, he's really smart. It's not really—it's not the smartness. I am obsessed with learning in a broken kind of way, okay? I am just like— I find everything fascinating. Everything allures me. I want to know everything. I want to experiment with everything. I just want to write. So let me give an example of this, okay? <clears throat> and everything can be improved, right? So my son wanted to get a fish tank, okay? Pretty simple. So we get like a 10-gallon fish tank, and he's like, maybe really nice if we got a bigger fish tank, right? So we got a 30-gallon fish tank, right? And I was like, you know what would be really fun is if we raise some, like, Wisconsin native game fish, because he's kind of really into fishing. So we need, like, some yellow perch and some walleye. But you can't grow walleye in a 30-gallon tank, right? So I got a 75-gallon tank. And, um, so now in his room, there's a 30-gallon tank and a 75-gallon tank. And then I'm like, well, um, if we're going to do this, 
we might need a bigger tank. So I've already been looking for a 150-gallon tank. And then I'm like, well, but then if we have these fish, we're going to have to feed them. And I'm not buying 35 cents goldfish every time we got to feed a walleye. Those things eat a lot. So they eat worms. Well, I wonder where, what if I, how much worms cost. But then I thought, I wonder what the breeding habits of worms are. Well, the breeding habits is this. Oh, they exponentially multiply. Well, how hard does it grow? Well, you can grow them in your basement. And all you got to do is buy some PMOS from Menards, and then you just put them in a bin. And then you can make a lot of them, and then we could sell them, and the girls could sell them. They could learn about business, and they could grow as entrepreneurs. And then, well, I can, and we could, maybe we could have a bigger tank. And then I wonder if we could sell. I wonder if, can you breed yellow perch? I don't know if you could do that. How do we, and my wife is like, do I need to come home right now? Do I need to drive home from Florida now? Right? And I just, like, I just find every bit of it fascinating. Right? Here's the thing about that. It has contributed to me being somewhat interesting as a preacher. It also has every capacity to entirely destroy my family and my marriage. In fact, so much so that two months ago, we had this couple coming over to the house who were newly engaged, wanting to go into ministry. I said, I said, maybe you'll want to connect this girl with a mentor, or maybe even do it yourself, since she, she's considering being a pastor's wife. She says, well, I'd love to, um, but I may have to tell her that she might need to break up with the man of her dreams. And I said, what does that mean? Three days later, or however many days later, we had lunch, in which she literally said the sentence, I regret marrying you. That is not every husband's dream. Is not every husband's dream, just in case you're wondering about what their wife would say 15 years into your marriage with four children. Okay, that was two months ago, and we're doing a lot better now. But, but this, I had a sense of like, you know, and then like everybody who's being intervened with, you're like, well, why didn't you say anything? Right? And they're like, I did say something. Right? But the point is, is that in that area of my life, in a lot of other areas of my life, I have, I have really, really good perception. In that area of my life, I am, I'm just broken. I'm just flat broken. I don't, I can't fix it. I don't know how to fix it. All I can do is corral it and get help. It's actually, it requires my wife being like, oh, you want to do that? Here's $20. If you spend more than $20, you have to come and tell me you spent more than $20 so that I can stop you. Okay. And I need that because that area, I cannot believe my gauges. I just can't, right? And this is a conversation I've had with lots of people counseling them. You get to that ninth, usually it's only three for me now, but you get to that like third session and you're like, listen, I'm not going to tell you the same thing again. If you can keep doing what you're doing and you can believe that you're right about it and your wife is going to leave you or your husband is going to leave you and for innumerable decades, whatever the rest of your life is, you can you can explain to yourself over and over in your mind how right you were and are. But your family will not be around. It's up to you. Because at some point you have to be like, look, I'm trying to help you read your gauges. Your gauges are just flat broken. And you see, the message of the gospel here, what Jesus is trying to explain is he's, he's trying to explain that his entrance into human experience was an intervention. The heavens, it says in Psalm 19, declare, that is, they are screaming every moment of every day the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament declares the work of his hands. Every moment, everything around us, everything that we see, everything that experiences us would astound us in wonder and drive us directly to an understanding of God 
that he is there, that we should be thankful towards him, that he has a certain kind of character and all of these things, and we don't see it. And he has been shouting in creation. He has been revealing in the law of Moses. He has been expressing himself through prophets. And ultimately, he had to have the, listen, I wish I didn't marry you conversation. Or, more literally this, you're not my child. You think, you go out, you think you're, you're not my child. You aren't. You have a father. You have picked a father. You have picked a father to admire his character, to experience belonging with, and to do his deeds. And it's not me. And I have come as the, God himself, the word, comes into human experience as a human because a profound intervention was necessary because we cannot trust our gauges. The reason every one of us experiences the world as an agnostic is not because we're all really good scientists. It's because in depravity, which we have all experienced, we have be our gauges have been skewed to see everything about God is inconclusive. Even though he's screaming to us, in creation. He's screaming to us in the divine image in human beings, and he's screaming to us in the special revelations of the Word of God written, and the Word of God enfleshed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That good news with all of its glory and all of its revelation of what God is really like, and here we are still being like, I don't know what we should think. It is an intervention, and it is meant to shake us and to help us realize Jesus came this way, as strange as it is, as weird as it is, as bombastic as it is, as direct as it is, as off-putting as it is, as hard as it is, because we need something just like that, because this is an intervention. But in that intervention is the invitation that if we will accept it, if we will believe, if we will— if we will receive him as what he is, if we will say, you're right, you're right. I need you as my father. And I receive Jesus for exactly who he said he is. We will receive the right to become the children of God. Without it, you have no right to have, to claim God as your father. None. But, funny thing about rights. When you do believe, you have the right to embrace everything that comes from being a child of God. Everything. The legitimacy, the belonging, the clarity, the given brothers and sisters, all of the salvations of family belong to you by right. And all of the resources that you acquire come from God himself spiritually, directly to you, and, and, and the radical renewing rebirth that is regeneration, so that you can experience being a child of God, and you can belong, and you can go and act and experience living in his character, belonging to his purpose and person, and living in his ways. If you can believe that, you should. If you say you already have lots of times and years ago, you should start believing it. 
such that you actually enjoy it. Such that it grounds you, such that it clarifies your character, such that it makes every moral decision for you and you're not caught in like, what should I do? Such that it binds you to other Christians. Such that it causes you to receive their intervention in your life because you've needed interventions before. And if you've never believed it for the first time, you need, you should, if you can believe it, you should believe it right now. You should, today, you should actually tell God you were wrong and he was right. Receive him and believe in him for who he is in the Christ. And then you should come and you need to talk to another human and tell them what's happening and pray with them and let them pray for you. And if you can't believe that yet, there are ways to respond to an intervention when you don't feel like you can believe them. You can listen to the argument. You can ask yourself, the way they're saying I'm deceiving myself, can I see other people deceiving? One of the things that I always think is hilarious is we believe that we are these enormously objective beings becoming natural scientific agnostics in our relationship to all of creation, and we weren't actually objective the last time we had an argument with our boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife or roommate. Like, like two days ago, you had an argument with somebody, and you had no interest in seeing their side. And yet, we turn around and we look at all of the cosmos and we expect ourselves to be these wonderfully objective agnostic scientists. It's crazy, right? But one of the things that you could see is, is, is say, listen, look at the rest of humanity. Look at every other human around you. Are they profoundly objective and not self-centered in the way they interpret the world? You do that for five seconds and you'll be like, oh, they're nuts. Okay. Yes. You're just like them. See, there are ways you can interact with and verify and look at someone coming to you with an intervention other than just saying it's manipulation or yes. And if you can't yet believe, um, you, you need to find somebody to talk this through with. You need to be part of the community of the church. You need to work and go after and be inquisitive and try to figure out what is going on. Because what just naturally happens when you fumble through the world is not conducive to receiving the loving intervention God has done through Christ so that you can become his child. We are not automatically God's children just because we're created. You have to become God's child. You can't do it by yourself, but you can in receiving Jesus for who he is be given from God the right to become God's child. And the minute you receive that right, God does the work of making you his child. And it can only be through faith. It's not meant to make you superior or greater. It's just meant to save you. And when you do that, everything in your life will be changed in its relationship to peacefulness, clarity, how you're willing to come out of yourself because of the humility it creates, because what you received, you didn't earn, you didn't do. It'll change the, your nature of your relationship to your family, to your coworkers, to everybody you've ever met. It will change the way you think about who you are. It'll change how insecure you are. It'll change how you react to people who attack you. It will change. It will change your sense of responsibility for your own life. It will change how you parent. It will change how you're a spouse. It will literally change everything as it works its way slowly in your life when you realize that it is the character of God that you belong to. And then out of that, you will do the deeds of your true father who has become truly your father and you truly his child.
Let's pray. Father, as the band comes up, I pray that you would give us the grace to to hear what we need to hear, um, know what we need to know, say what we need to say. Holy Spirit, please come and intervene with us and teach us. I pray that you would lead only towards the truth and that in any acknowledgement of the truth, your graciousness and your generosity would be poured out on anyone who would be open to it. And I pray for people who are um, agnostic or wondering or not sure or unbelieving in all the honesty they know how to have in their own mind. I pray that you would work in them and you would, you would lead them. Um, your word says that anybody who seeks finds. I pray that they would feel a sense of responsibility, not just to believe, but to seek. To see if your intervention is honest and loving or whether it's manipulative. And I pray that you would give the means and the way for them to seek and find. I pray that as we come to the time of Christmas, that every one of us would be able to see some great, glorious beauty in the fact that you became a child for the precise reason that we might, through faith, become your children.